fact, if you want to uh, see what guilt looks like on the face of most Christians, it's very easy. You simply walk up to them and say, tell me about your prayer life. And this sense of sinks on most people's shoulders. Because actually, you don't have to be following Jesus for very long before you realize that actually the idea of prayer, the thought of prayer, feels like a lot easier than the practice of prayer. And that sense of guilt, that sense of I don't pray as much as I should, and I don't feel like I pray for others as much as I should, and gosh, I do pray a lot when I'm in trouble, but I'm not very good at praying for the world or for my friends or just weighs down on us. So on the one hand, this sense of prayer being duty, something that we have to do, we ought to do, that we have to achieve, and that lands on us like guilt. On the other end of the scale, at least, or in a different approach to prayer, but to equally unhealthy, is prayer as a technique, a skill, if you like. At which point, talk of prayer makes me feel frustrated, or at my worst, rather stupid, or rather slow. I imagine prayer as something other people do probably very well. And that maybe one day, if I really get to be a grown-up Christian, I'll get to learn how to do really well. And if you ask people, well, who do you think is probably really good at prayer? They'd probably name monks and nuns. Terrifyingly for me, they'd probably name vicars and bishops and archbishops. But very few of us would name ourselves. Prayer as a duty that makes me feel guilty. Prayer as a technique that makes me feel, well, a bit stupid. Whereas actually at every point in the Bible where prayer is spoken about from its very beginning to its very end, prayer is actually seen as a gift. Something we're given. Something we're given to make us glad, not sad. Something we're given to lift our hearts, not to weigh us down. Something we're given, not something that we have to grasp and work out the technique of. Because prayer at its heart is the expression of our relationship with God. Prayer is my response to, my engagement in, my joining in with the friendship that God offers me in Jesus. He invites me in. He says, I want you to know me as I know you. And just as every friendship has at its heart communication, sometimes using words, sometimes not using words, sometimes face-to-face, sometimes at great distance, our relationship with God has at its beating heart this gift, this wonderful gift of prayer. What we've tried over these last few weeks is just, I mean, we've not even come close to scratching the surface of the wonder and the mystery of prayer, but what we've tried to do is to look at it from all sorts of different angles through passages in the Old Testament, passages in the New Testament, and ask this question, well, what does it look like when we pray? What does it sound like when we pray? Why do we pray? What's at the heart of it? And we come this week, as we come to the end of our series on prayer, and as we dive into Advent fully and get ready for Christmas over the next two or three weeks, is we come to this astonishingly rich few sentences in the middle of an astonishingly rich few paragraphs of Jesus speaking to his friends, the disciples, right towards the end of his life, him preparing them to be, as they would feel, left. Beginning of John 14 is a passage we often read at funerals. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And you find uh, 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 Philip and the other disciples getting very confused, very worried. Hang on, Jesus. 
We've been with you these last three years. We've loved being your friends, this communication we've had, talking to you, you talking to us, uh, us learning from you, seeing what you're doing, doing things with you. And you're saying that you're going. You're leaving us behind. What are we to do? And how do we know God if you're not going to be here? Who are you? Where are you going? What are you doing? That's the context into which these few verses that Helen read for us lands. And what Jesus is saying to them is that actually if you're to get your heads and hearts around what's about to happen, then right at the heart of that is this gift of prayer. And if we're to get our heads and our hearts and our lives around prayer, it seems to me that what these few sentences help us to do is to understand at the heart of prayer who Jesus is and who we are. On one level, very simply, that these few sentences we've had split into two halves, understanding who Jesus is and therefore how and why we pray and who I am, who you are, who we were made to be and therefore how and why we pray. And in the heart of that, if you like, as the one who joins those halves together for us in our experience is God's gift of his Holy Spirit. So this question, who is this Jesus? Now, for Jesus' friends, that was absolutely the question above all questions. Here was this man they'd followed for three years, some of them. Day and night, they'd traveled around countryside that they'd never visited before. They'd seen things happen they'd never experienced before. They'd seen healings and risings from the dead and feeding of the thousands. They'd seen him speak with authority. They'd seen him speak with challenge. They'd seen him treat people with incredible, exquisite grace and love. And all the while, this question ticking away in their hearts and minds, who is this Jesus? Who is he? Is he just a rabbi, a religious teacher to follow? Is he somebody who will one day sort of sit up there in the hierarchy, be leading the temple, or maybe he's going to come and maybe he's going to come and actually throw out our oppressors, the Romans. Maybe he's going to lead us in rebellion. Who is he? What's he here to do? And what Jesus says to them at its heart is to say to them, actually, I'm the one who makes God known in whom you meet your Father in heaven, through whom you get drawn into friendship with God himself. Verse 11, he says to Philip, who has asked him this question, show us the Father, back in verse 8. Show us the Father, show us God. Everybody wants to know God. If there's really a God, how can we know him? Please, Jesus, before you go, just help us out with this one thing. And Jesus' response is, oh, really? Three years with me and you still don't get it. Three years with me and you still think I haven't answered that question. Three years with me and what you don't see is that actually when you meet me, you've met God. Verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Who is Jesus? He's the one who makes the Father known. You know, the Christian faith is unique in so many ways. 
But one of the ways in which it's unique is this astonishing, outrageous, on the face of it, thoroughly ridiculous claim that in Jesus we don't just find out about God, nor do we just find how to live for God, that actually in Jesus we meet God. That Jesus wasn't simply a prophet sent to tell us important things about him, nor was he simply a religious leader sent to show us a better way to live, nor was he a philosopher helping us with better ways to think. He was actually Emmanuel. God come to be with us. Not simply a signpost away to God, but God himself come to be with us. So who is Jesus? He's the one who makes the Father known by saying, meet me. Hear what I say. You hear God's words. See what I do. You see what God is doing. And that meant that as Jesus came, he came to do what his Father was doing. He came to bring in a new kingdom. God's kingdom. God's kingdom being the place where what God says is done. The rule of the king. The one who rules the universe. Seen, lived out, spoken out. He's the one who comes to bring a new era. And that means that when he returns to go and be with his father, after his life and death and resurrection and ascension, this time that Jesus is pointing ahead in their lives, just a matter of days, when he goes to be with his father in heaven, there is a new era that dawns. When this kingdom that Jesus brings begins to be seen in a brand new way. Verse 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Now, what's he been doing? He's been doing the will of the Father. He's been living out God's life amongst us. He's been speaking God's words. He's been doing God's actions. He's been bringing in the kingdom. And he says, when I go and sit with my Father in heaven, you will get to go on doing what I've been doing. You'll get to live out the life of God in God's world. You'll get to speak God's words. You'll get to do God's actions. And then we trip up over the second half of verse 12. You will do even greater things than these because I'm going to be with my Father. One of the things we occasionally do on a Monday morning when we gather together as a staff team, we, we always gather to pray, um, and we pray for anybody who's asked us particularly to pray for them. We pray for what's coming up in the week. But one of the things that we occasionally do is we um, open up the Bible and we look at the passage that whoever's going to be preaching the following Sunday is going to be preaching on. Uh, it's great as the preacher. It's a great cheat because we get to spend an hour chewing it over together, and I get you know, the wisdom of, of a crowd and my friends. Uh, and actually what we all did was trip up over the second half of verse 12. You will do even greater things than what I've been doing. Now, it's worth just pausing because I think actually this opens a door for us on what Jesus is saying. On the face of it, it sounds patently absurd. When you start adding up the things that have already happened in John's gospel by this point, and then add to them all the things that happen in all the gospels that Jesus has done, it is 
you could actually say, actually impossible to imagine things that are greater than those things that Jesus has been doing. I mean, Jesus raises the dead. So, how is it possible that you and I do things even greater than those? Well, I don't think, for a start, that it is simply Jesus saying, you're going to do even more spectacular things than me. For a start, Jesus showed no great interest in the spectacular. He did things that were spectacular, that they were always a means to another end. And he wasn't very interested at all. In fact, the opposite, in trying to gather crowds around and say, hey, look at this trick. Actually, Jesus wasn't like that at all. Nor does it mean, and and the way that John has written this makes it pretty clear, that he doesn't mean simply you're going to do more stuff than I did because there's more of you. There would have been a different way of writing that. The clue is actually in what he says, as always, right there in that verse, the because You will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. My sense of this is that what Jesus is saying is, you will go on saying the things that God is saying, doing the things that God is doing, but you're going to be doing them in a whole new era. No more will this be God's hidden work happening, if you like, behind the scenes, growing like a mustard seed simply hidden out of sight. Now, I am going to be sitting on the throne with my Father in heaven in the new age that is to come, but is already coming. And in that new era, what you're doing, in that sense, will be even greater. In other words, don't worry about me going back to be with my Father. It's a really good thing. I'm going to be sitting on the throne of heaven and earth. You are going to be living out God's life in his world. Look forward to it. When you bring those two things together, we suddenly start to see what prayer is and what it isn't. You see, when we remember that Jesus is the one in whom and through whom we meet God, that Jesus is the one in whom and through whom God acted amongst us, and now that through and in Jesus, you and I go on living out the life of God in his world, Prayer sits right at the heart of that as the way through which we're able to do what he's called us to do. Now, this prayer isn't simply this tool over here I use for getting what I want. Prayer is my communication with God that puts me in the place to do those things that he's called me to do, to speak those words that he's given me to speak, to live out that life of the kingdom that Jesus has made possible. Verse 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. So when Jesus was on earth, his aim was to bring glory to God. This was God amongst us, showing us who the Father was. And now he's gone back to be with his Father in heaven. Our aim in prayer is exactly the same. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before. I will do whatever you ask in my name. I don't know whether your favorite car is a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, an Aston Martin. I'm an Aston Martin man myself. Not that I've ever owned one, and I doubt I ever will. But, you know, I could, you know, you said, Richard, you know, imagine a car, it would be a British racing green open-top Aston Martin. It's worrying how quickly I can tell you that, but it's just there. I can just visualize it. 
I will do whatever you ask in my name. Now, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible's true in what it tells me. I believe Jesus. So why is it that if I prayed a prayer, Jesus, we've got a bit of a clapped out, decade old, got a bump in the bumper, Mondeo estate, and it's a bit clunky and a bit old and a bit rubbish. I really, really, with all my heart, would love a British racing green open top Aston Martin, preferably a new one, but I'd settle for a second hand. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> so it's quite dangerous standing underneath that. Um, now, you know that that's how absurd. We know that that's ridiculous. It doesn't take a degree in theology to know that's not what Jesus meant. But here's the point. When Jesus says, in my name, what he's saying is, prayer has to do with me, with Jesus. Prayer has to do with joining in with what Jesus did and is doing. Have you ever seen those placards at rallies? Not in my name. Yeah? What that says is, don't you dare claim to be acting on my behalf. Don't you dare. Not in my name. When I pray in Jesus' name, what I'm claiming to do is to say to Jesus, I want this on your behalf. I want this on your behalf because this, this thing I'm praying for is me joining in with what you're doing, bringing the kingdom of God, the rule of God, speaking his words, living out his actions. This is prayer, to join in with the work of Jesus, his life in me. In other words, in Jesus' name isn't the equivalent, Christian equivalent of abracadabra. Like, if I say it, everything works out. It's not a magic formula. It's a reminder that prayer is joining in with the life of God. And so, of course, if I simply put me at the heart of the universe and I pray, Jesus, I'm afraid, for our own sake and the sake of the world, has to say to us, not in my name. Now, sometimes, with the best of motives and the best of hearts, I'm praying what I am sure is surely what God wants, sure is what Jesus wants. And there are still times when God has to say no or wait and not yet. But this reminds me that actually it's not because he's callous or indifferent to my prayer. It's because he loves me and he wants me to be thoroughly joined in with what he's doing, not just with what I think he's doing. In other words, Jesus isn't simply the one who answers my prayers, I will do. He's the reason for my prayers in my name. Now, don't let that stop you praying. Quite the opposite. Jesus copes very well with us getting it wrong. Just like the perfect parent, he'd much rather we were talking to him, getting it wrong, and learning from the experience than not talking to him at all. Wouldn't it be awful if we decided, well, I can't possibly pray that because it might not be right? Actually, God is the perfect parent. He loves us to come to him. He loves us to tell him what's on our hearts. But we do so in humility. We do so saying, do you know, not my will, not what I think, but what you think. Not what I want, simply but I want to want what you want. And that neatly segues, if you like, into the second half of what we hear Jesus saying. Because all of that feels like a pretty tall order. How am I, this, to use the language we used earlier on, this jumbled jigsaw puzzle of a person, 
whose life is jumbled and messy with big gaps and bits around the edge that I've never discovered and a couple of corners missing, how am I ever going to thoroughly join in with the life of God? How am I going to speak the words God wants me to speak? How is my life going to look like Jesus' life? How am I going to join in? I mean, I'm pretty rubbish at knowing what to pray, let alone knowing how to live. How am I going to do this? I think Jesus probably sees those sets of thoughts going on in his friends. And so he gives them a promise. Sadly, it's a promise that you and I tend to hear as a criticism. It's often the way. Verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, I take that as a promise, not a critique. He's not suddenly flipping the whole of Christian theology on its head and saying, actually, you've got to obey me because that's the way that then we get to have a relationship. It's much more full of promise than that. What he's saying is, start with loving me. Start with that response of love to my love for you, and then you will obey my commands. As you love me, so the overflow of that love will be speaking God's words, doing God's actions, joining in with what God's doing. In other words, it is all about relationship. It's all about belonging. It's all about responding to what God has done for us. That's the beauty of verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You're going to belong. You are my daughters, my sons. You belong to my family. It's about relationship. The heart of prayer is simply that expression of friendship, relationship with God. But still, how do I do it? Well, what Jesus does is he says to them, I am going to be with my Father, but I'm not leaving you. I am going to ascend to be with my Father in heaven, but you're not going to be on your own. You're not going to be left as orphans. You're not going to be left wondering and wishing because I will come to you. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another. That word another is a word that means another of the same type. In other words, a sort of another me. Another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Now, our problem that is that in these, uh, an era that has been defined for many people by things like Star Wars, the moment you start talking about an invisible spirit, people start thinking about an invisible power force, a thing that does stuff, if you can just hook in, by which we're down to the technique stuff again, aren't we? You know, if somehow I can sort of angle things right and say the right words and get enough of the Spirit, then God will do some stuff in me. Actually, the Holy Spirit is always portrayed in personal terms. God himself come to be with me. Some English translations use this word, counselor. Others talk about an advocate. Some use helper. The word that John uses Actually, you could translate as well, and I, this is what I love, it's a bit chunk, clunky, I think, to stick in the translation, but the one who is called alongside us, called alongside us, um, parakletos, para, something to do with alongside, like that word parallel, kletos, something like that word klaxon, that call, the one who is called alongside. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? 
And if you're going on a difficult journey, if you're walking into work tomorrow morning and it's going to be tough, if you're dealing with your children late at night and it's tough, if you are just at your wit's end to do with money or your job or your family or your future, wouldn't it be just stunning to know that God calls alongside one to be with you? Come on, be with them. The Holy Spirit is the one called alongside us as counsellor, helper, advocate. We're not on our own. We're not left as orphans. We are accompanied through life. The one who makes Jesus known in our lives, the one who brings us to the Father, the one who helps us to pray, the one who helps us to know that we're heard, the one who helps us to hear God, the one who makes faith real in us. That's God by his Spirit. The one who helps us join in the work of God. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I, says Jesus, I will come to you by my spirit. So here's where I want to land our term on prayer. Prayer is my response, my joining in with that friendship with God that he calls me to in Jesus. Prayer is that way by which I join in with the work that God is doing to bring his kingdom in, to remake, if you like, that broken, jumbled jigsaw of this world, to put the pieces back together, not just in my life, but in my community, my family, the world in which I live. And as I pray in Jesus' name, what I'm praying is that God will use me and will be at work in his world to put the pieces back together as they're meant to be. But I'm not somehow sent off on this journey on my own. Jesus doesn't stand there, if you like, at the start of my life and say, off you go, Richard. See you who in how many, ever many decades' time. Do a good job. Be good. Pray lots. Be a nice person. See you at the end, and we'll see how you've done. That's religion. That's not faith. What he says is, off you go, Richard, and I'm coming with you. By my spirit, the called alongside one, the one who will help you to pray, the one who will transform your life so you speak my words and live my life and draw others to know me. So if you're somebody that has ever said yes to Jesus, that was the Holy Spirit's work in you. If you're somebody who has ever sensed the presence of God in worship, or in the dead of the night as you've been with your kids, or in a moment in work where you've spoken those words and thought, gosh, that went right. Where did that come from? How, how did I know? That's the work of the Spirit in you. And every day of my life, I say to God, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. To use terribly clunky language, I know that I leak. I need him to fill me each day. I know I put more of myself in his place each day, and I need to say to him, Jesus, I don't want to live this life as an orphan. I don't want to live this life on my own. I wasn't designed to. Fill me afresh with you. In a minute or two's time, we're going to respond uh, with song. And then we're going to respond as we share communion. But just for a minute or two now, we're going to be still. 
And I want to give you a chance, if you like, to respond to what you've heard. We don't always do this on a Sunday, but just for a minute or two. And in that quietness, you may simply want to think about what you've heard. Think about how you're responding. If you're somebody who's been following Jesus for years, then maybe you already know what this is to simply say to Jesus, fill me afresh. We'll say it again. Invite him by his spirit to fill you afresh. It doesn't come conditionally. He always answers that prayer. And if you're somebody who's never said to God, I don't want to live my life on my own. I'm not really sure about all of this, maybe. I haven't got all the answers. I couldn't even answer all my own doubts. But I don't want to live this life without you. Then why not take a chance? Why not ask him to come and start putting the pieces back together in your life and to fill you with the spirit of Jesus and to help you to respond to him? I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You say in your quietness of your heart what you need to say to God. And we're just going to take a few moments to be relatively still and relatively quiet.